The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome everyone. Nice to see everybody here tonight. Some of us have been reading along through this book by Ajahn Chah, Food for the Heart. And in chapter 16, he continues to talk about this path of practice. Sometimes we call it a path of waking up. Sometimes we call it a a path of awareness, of being more and more alert and relaxed and mindful as we go through our lives. But one of the things, as soon as we begin, one of the things we very clearly recognize that it isn't just a practice of giving ourselves over to the habits of the mind, which would, you know, it sounds really nice. It sounds really easy just to trust the heart, relax, let things be. And you even hear these kinds of teachings, and there's some truth to them, but it's way too simplistic because if we just allowed everything to be, that means we're allowing all the violence and all the greed and all the delusion and all the aversion behind the violence to continue. You know, and that's not just out there in everybody else's heart. The seeds of that violence and that delusion and greed and anger and fear, that's here. You know, maybe not as obvious, at least in some moments, as it might appear to be out there in the world and other people, but we all have our own dose. And so it's not really appropriate for us to think that the spiritual path would be just letting things be. There's a place for that, just letting things be. But in order to really do that right, to just let things be, we have to train the heart. There's a well-known Buddhist monk, an American Buddhist monk, Ajahn Sumedho, a wonderful teacher. You can look him up and get lots of good things online if you're interested. And uh, he has this wonderful, simple line. It's not about following the heart. It's about training the heart. And all of a sudden, we're not as interested in Buddhist practice. (laughs) Train the heart. I thought I was running away from all those systems that were about training the heart or fixing things, you know? I'm exhausted. I'm tired. I don't want to have to fix one more thing. And besides, it's always so frustrating to try to fix things because it never really works. Part of that is that the way we thought to fix something wasn't actually fixing anything. And part of it is that we didn't give it enough time. Sometimes we're actually trying to train or fix or change things in a really productive way, but we're not patient enough. We sort of dabble. And we don't get immediate success, so we think, oh, that's not going to work. And other times, it's like we're totally off in how the mind needs to be trained. So the Buddha talks about three places to train. We've been talking about these the last few months. And it's, it's not uh, always taught in a sequential way, but it's useful to think of it this way, like in a foundational way. We need to train in non-harming. 
Because unless we get relatively good of, at being in the world without harming ourselves and others, the uh, creating harm is very disturbing for the mind in all kinds of ways. It's, it should be obvious to us. If we're causing ourselves harm by drinking too much or acting in ways that are unsafe, and we're acting in ways that are causing harm to others, they're going to be angry at us and want revenge or something. It's not going to be that easy for the whole mind-body to settle down, become more relaxed, more clear, and to have insight to transform itself. So we need to train in non-harming. We take up the training in non-harming. We become really dedicated. We become in love with the training in non-harming. Now, this is not something you hear too often, you know, like our good friend saying, I am so enthusiastic about non-harming. I find so much joy in the training in non-harming. I'm always looking for ways to develop, to refine my understanding and my way, my way of being that is more in line with non-harming. But according to the Buddha, and of course, the teaching on non-harming is not exclusive to the Buddha. This is We've been hearing this from every spiritual tradition, every religious tradition since the beginning of time. But it, we always assume that we're good enough. Like whatever our ethics are, or whatever our particular relationship to non-harming is, like it's so much better than other people. It's got to be good enough. But the point is that it's not about reaching some threshold it's about engaging the training because it itself, the training itself, is liberating. It's a source of real happiness, resonant happiness, and it supports deeper happiness in a, for arising, uh, the cause for deeper happiness to arise. And you can see just, you know, superficially, it's relatively easy to avoid shooting people and, you know, stealing from people. But when you start looking at it, it actually gets really complicated. It requires a lot of uh, respect. We have to respect how subtle the ways that we set in motion harming for ourselves and others are. Now, we could either relate to this as a big burden, like I have to live with non-harming, otherwise I'll go to hell, or, or people will judge me. But that's not helpful because that's harming ourselves. You know, laying that load on our mind, on our heart, is an act of violence. This hating ourselves for being somebody who harms others is not a practice in non-harming. It's a practice in harming. That's what I mean. It's not so simple how to practice non-harming. And equally, not harming ourselves or others, not like... I'm more interested in not harming others, but it's okay to harm myself. Or I don't want to harm myself, but it's okay to harm others. But to somehow hold all of it equally, this non-harming. And it, it completely shifts our view. So that's one training the Buddha emphasized. He also emphasized this training in samadhi and calm and tranquility. He thought that if a, if a human being that wasn't overwhelmed by pain and suffering in their life just reflected a little bit 
it would be relatively easy for a human being to value non-harming for self and others. And in the same with the second value of calm or tranquility, that as long as we're not totally disturbed or thrown about by life, living in poverty or facing, you know, violence day in, day out, abuse day in, day out, that just with a little reflection, it would make so much sense to value, to respect calm and tranquility. Everything, like what doesn't go better with calm and tranquility? And remember, you might, some people who haven't reflected on the experience of calm and tranquility might consider it to be a sort of dull state of mind. But that's dullness, sleepiness. That's not tranquility. You don't have to be dull in order to be tranquil. So it's really important to understand the experience of sleepiness or dullness or heavy, any sort of heavy state of mind. But tranquility can be quite uh, alert and vibrant and bright, alive. Like when the system is really released, the body-mind is released from its oppressive tendencies, from tension, it feels it comes alive. So you want to think about tranquility as a coming alive because the mind isn't oppressed by tension or stress. So when we understand tranquility in that way, who among us would not be interested in it? Why wouldn't we want to be totally devoted to this training in tranquility? Or sometimes, maybe in a more technical way, a better definition or translation of the word samadhi might be unification of mind, the coming together of the mind, the non-fragmentation of the mind. I mean, this is a value that we should have. We should remember the value of non-harming and the value of calm or unification of mind or integrity of mind, steadiness of mind. So these are different words for samadhi. Like, I value that. And of course, a life that really feels right is when the way we are at all times is in alignment with our deepest values. That feels good. When we're living a life that's not in line with our deeper values, we feel guilty. <laughs> you know, we don't really want to be present because we'll feel really miserable that we're not living in alignment with our values. So we want to have these values and then we want to live in alignment. We want to Everything we do all day long should be somehow both an expression of these values, but also supporting the development, the strengthening, the deepening of these values. So they, in a sense, shine through. Somebody sees us, and without, without us saying a word, they just feel the vibration of non-harming. It's like part of who we are, just as they observe us sitting down in the chair or having a conversation, or they just get the vibe of calm, that steadiness of the mind, the steadiness of the heart. It's just part of who somebody is. And then the last training the Buddha suggests, this value of wisdom. 
In a Buddhist sense, wisdom means understanding the way it is, understanding the way things are. Not the mind not caught or not addicted to what it's been told, but understands through a direct, careful, continuous opening, mindful attention to one's life, one's experience, then one's understanding is derived, it comes out of that mindful awareness of experience, not out of a theory, including Buddhist theory. It wouldn't necessarily be right view or wisdom if you memorized all the teachings and not only memorized them, but you reflected intellectually on them and really understood them in an intellectual way. It's not the same. It's like you could become a real expert on craving and everything the Buddha said about craving and what other people have taught about craving and how that craving experience relates to other ideas you know, about human emotions, afflictive emotions. But it's completely different than having had moments of that continuous mindful attention to the actual experience of craving and to see from what does craving arise in the mind. And once craving is in the mind, how, what is its tendency? Where, where does it tend to unfold? In, in what direction? Toward what kind of experience? What does craving lead to? What is the consequence of the mind that craves? Seeing that over and over again directly with that balanced, steady attention, that leads to an understanding that in a sense is unshakable. It's like it doesn't matter what other people say about craving. The mind knows directly the experience of craving and whether it's skillful or not, and what it leads to, and what are the supporting causes for it, the proximate causes for it. And that kind of wisdom, that kind of understanding, we could say is rock solid. It's unshakable. And then the kind of choices we make comes out of that understanding. So these are the three trainings we can take up. The training in non-harming, or you could, if you like the positive word, you could say the training in kindness, the training in calm, or abandoning afflictive states of mind, right? The opposite of calm when the mind is frazzled or fragmented or reactive, greedy, aversive, fearful, dull, restless. These are all expressions of non-calm. So you can think about it in terms of abandoning the agitated states of mind or cultivating the unified, steady, peaceful, clear, bright mind. And then this value of wisdom, that there is this life and that this moment, this experience of this life in this moment has things to teach that go beyond what any book or any teacher can teach us. All the Buddhas, all the teachers, teachings, all they can do is, is basically encourage us to cultivate a mind 
that can open to the truth of things. There's no way that a teacher or a teaching can do the work for us. They can, teachings can inspire us, teachers can inspire us, but it doesn't, you know, inspiration is, it's important, but it doesn't really lead to much in and of itself. We actually have to do the work. We have to take the steadiness that comes from the development of non-harming, the happiness of non-harming. You know, living with kindness, we feel really good about ourselves. When we live, when we've trained in non-harming and just having an integrity where we're not cheating, we're not manipulating, we have relationships that have integrity to them, then we feel good about our life. We have that basic self-respect. So, you know, what do we call that? The sleep, not of the wicked. What's that phrase? The sleep of the... The just, yeah, we have the sleep of the just. We feel good at night. We don't sit up and worry about stupid things we said to somebody that we wish we hadn't said. Or what is that person going to do to me? (laughs) Because we have these harmonious relationships. And when we've trained the mind, when we've really uh, discovered how to work with the mind, just in the same way, maybe some of you saw that movie (coughs) Buck, about the horse trainer came out maybe a year and a half ago. It was a really good movie. I recommend it. Evidently, he was uh, brought on as a consultant for that movie that I never saw with Robert Redford, The Horse Whisperer. So it's this idea that a lot of the ways that people were trained uh, to train horses was based on kind of a really bad idea, you know, sort of being more powerful than the horse, using strength and and violence to make the horse do what you want it to do. And this guy, Buck, I'm not sure what his real name is, maybe it's Buck, but anyway, as a young boy, he had a very abusive father who beat him and his brother, and they did all these sort of rodeo trick stuff, and I think they were even on the Ed Sullivan show or something. They, They had some fame as young boys, but they had a very abusive childhood. And so later he uh, went from doing rodeo tricks to being a horse trainer, and he developed this other approach to working training horses. And you know, one of the things, one of the nice things about watching something like that is we realize it's really not that different than training our own mind. And so one of the things we learn in developing samadhi, this steadiness of mind, this peace of mind, first of all, we realize the mind is quite unruly. And our normal tactic with that is to give the mind, this unruly mind, as much space as possible so it doesn't kick down fences or doesn't harm anybody. So we just let it do what it wants because when we stop letting it do what it wants, it causes us problems. You know, you go home and you know you shouldn't be watching TV until late at night, but we're afraid of the mind. We're afraid of telling the mind what to do. We don't know how to tell the mind what to do. We don't, the mind doesn't know how to follow the voice of wisdom. So it just does what it's inclined to do because it's pleasant to do this. And it doesn't care about the long-term pleasantness or unpleasantness. It just knows right now having the third bowl of ice cream or watching the fourth hour of TV or, you know, whatever it might be for us, that there's still a little bit of pleasantness left. 
So why not extract as much pleasantness until it's absolutely all gone, and then we'll go dig somewhere else for some pleasantness. And so that's that unruly mind that is literally addicted to pleasant experience and afraid of unpleasant experience. And it, if, if it's left to its own devices, it won't tolerate any unpleasant experience, even if that unpleasant experience leads to a long-time happy experience. That's how crazy it is. And it will take up any pleasant experience that's available, even if it leads to long-term unpleasant experience. <coughs> Have you noticed this about your mind? We do this all the time, and we know better, don't we? And then, so we're, this is really the training of samadhi. It's just the sitting practice and, and the stabilization of attention in the sitting practice is just a microcosm for the whole day, or whole life, really. So what, how do we do that? How, you know, what have people, what have women and men learned about training this unruly mind so that it becomes steady and begins to feed on an inner happiness so it's not so desperate for any little glimmer of pleasant experience? You know, the reason we have that fourth bowl or that fourth hour of TV or that, you know, whatever, going back to somebody, some relationship that we know is not for our long-term benefit, but at least we'll have a good time tonight. So we'll just you know, go out with that person or something like that. Why do we do that? And why can't we refrain from that? And how do we do that training? And part of it, part of what happens is when the mind is unruly, when we are really addicted to pleasant experience, and so like in the meditation setting, we'll go think about something, even though it's ultimately stressful, but we'll go there because initially there's a little excitement thinking about that or worrying about that or imagining that or fantasizing about something. We get a little bit of juice, even though it's stressful, but we're so desperate for that juice. <clears throat> so you're, you're probably sensing what how we can begin to change it. And it's always this chicken and egg thing, like when we're feeling the heart is feeling neglected without any happiness, without any pleasantness, then in a way we become really desperate for pleasantness. And we're willing to make these terrible compromises where we'll take a little temporary pleasantness even if it implies a lot of unpleasantness to come because we're so desperate. So how do we <clears throat> overcome that feeling of desperation? Because when we're feeling this inner contentedness, this inner happiness, it's actually relatively easy not to eat the second, third, fourth bowl of whatever or watch things because we're not desperate for a pleasant experience. We're already feeling pretty good. It would be fine to go clean the bathroom or sit on the couch or take care of some business because that feeling of inner goodness, that pleasant contentedness of the heart, it's already established, so we might as well take care of what needs being done. Now, have you noticed this coming up sometimes in your life? Like how much more productive we are when we feel happy? Because we're not desperately trying to be happy, so we're willing to do what's in front of us, what needs being done, which of course sets in motion 
other causes for longer-term happiness because we don't have the stress of not doing what needs to be done weighing down on us. And we have a sense of having done our best, which is a very pleasant experience to have, which supports that inner contentedness, that sense of trusting the heart to do the best it can. So how do we go from this feeling of inner desperation and really wanting something pleasant to entertain the mind, to relieve us of the feeling of not being content? How do we break that cycle? And this is the interesting thing about the samadhi piece, this training in samadhi or calm, is it's not like we have to give the heart a lot of gold in order for it to feel content. Because we think this is the mistake. This is where wrong view comes in. We think the discontentment is because we don't have that beautiful cabin in the North Woods and the hybrid car that can go there, you know, without causing global warming. And we don't have the perfect friends and we don't have the ideal job and we don't. And if we had all those things, then we'd be content. But actually, the discontentment comes because the mind is thinking those thoughts about not having the cabin, not having the car, not having the boy or girl, not having the whatever. So if we just bring the attention to the breath or to the present moment or to washing the dishes 100%, so we're just there in that experience of breathing in 100% or washing the dishes 100% or walking down the path 100%, then that means 100% where you are not thinking about what makes the mind discontent. We have to think about what we don't have to be discontent. So we don't have to get all that stuff to be content. We just have to cease thinking about what we want to experience contentment. Now, you don't have to believe me. Try it. Or, or just use your own memory, because there have been times in each of our lives where we have done something 100%. The mind was 100% engaged without being driven by fear of greed or aversion. Right? So you know, when you're being chased by a tiger, you may be 100% engaged, but the mind is absolutely colored by fear and aversion. But think about times when you did something, you were just in some experience, 100%. So fully, the mind was so fully engaged that there really wasn't any space in the mind to think about anything else. It was just that, doing that. People report all the time, 100% of the time, that this is a very pleasant, satisfying, deeply satisfying experience. Even life-transforming, when it's complete, doesn't matter if it's in athletics or music or lovemaking or walking through the woods or aware of the breath coming in, aware of the breath going out, or anything. Anything will do if we do it because then we have that continuity of attention, that steadiness. The mind is healed, it's whole, it's unfragmented, and it realizes the contentedness, the happiness of a mind that isn't overrun by greed and aversion, by stories of a somebody who doesn't have something and would be happier if he or she did, 
or somebody who has something that they don't want and would be so happy if they didn't have that. Those stories debilitate the mind. They're literally toxic for the mind. So that training in studying the attention and realizing that inner contentedness, it's not about getting, it's about abandoning. It's, it's, this is the real nifty move. And you have to know this move because otherwise what you're going to do when you take up meditation practice, you're going to think it's a practice of attaining something. I'm attaining calm. I'm going from this depleted place and I'm getting myself to the top of the mountain and I'll be happy when I'm there. But actually, it's the practice of abandoning what's making the mind experience discontentedness and ill uh, ill ease, ill will, stress. We just abandon the causes for stress and what's left is a beautiful heart, a beautiful mind that's naturally happy and peaceful and whole. And that's, as nice as that is, that's not the end of practice. It's just the ideal mind to do the work of insight, this last training that we engage. So first we study our lives by realizing the happiness of living without harming others or harming ourselves, living with kindness. We just start to feel really good about ourselves really good about our lives, or certainly a lot better about ourselves and better about our lives. And then we we learn this nifty move with the mind that I don't have to gratify all my desires in order to be happy. I just need to cease thinking about all that I want and all that I'm afraid of. And my heart feels good. Now, I know we don't believe that completely, so we actually have to believe it just enough to check it out. And then once you check it out a little bit, you get a little bit of samadhi. You have 45 seconds of the attention just with the breath. Right? You sit for 45 minutes, but you get 45 seconds. You know, Sometimes it's 5 seconds, sometimes it's 20 seconds, and at some point you peak in the middle of your 45-minute sit and you get 45 seconds without much of a distraction. So in that 45 seconds, there's just the simplicity of knowing the breath going in, knowing the breath going out. But that's not all that's being known. In that knowing the breath coming in and knowing the breath going out and doing that wholeheartedly, 100%, then the mind is also realizing the mind that's not doing anything else, right? That's not a small thing. That is a revolutionary act. I still remember one of my first moments of samadhi back in the early 80s, sitting in a beaten down Victorian house in Berkeley, California, with my buddy meditating before we had dinner, the person I was living with. And uh, we we had been college friends, and then we went our separate ways and ended up in grad school at UC Berkeley together lived together, and we both had discovered meditation when we were away from each other. And we had this great sort of meditation relationship. We sat every morning, every evening. And I remember, so I I started, I had a little momentum, like I was not having deep experiences, but I was really steady with my practice, doing it at least twice a day. And so I was just sitting one ordinary day, and my mind quieted down. It was just with the experience of the breath. 
and not doing anything else. And it was so incredibly pleasant. I was shocked. I mean, I, and I had studied, I knew a lot already. But like I said at the beginning of the talk, there's a big difference between knowing about samadhi, studying it and knowing, just making it make sense, you know, when the mind isn't doing anything else, that would be sort of a unique experience. But when the mind actually realizes what it's like when the mind isn't doing anything else, just in the present moment, for some period of time, you need a little bit of time before uh, it's like this exponential function. The quietness, the contentedness really builds in just a few seconds when the mind isn't doing anything to realize that, oh, they weren't kidding. <laughs> you know, that they actually knew what they were talking about. That concentration, this steadiness of attention in the present moment is deeply, deeply healing on a psychological, emotional, and spiritual, in a psychological, emotional, spiritual sense. It really heals the feeling we live with most of the time of being alienated, disconnected, lonely, not worthy. All of these toxic emotions that are around to some degree most of the time for us momentarily are not there. So that's that freedom we experience. It's a temporary freedom because they're going to come back when that steadiness of attention is broken. But we get a taste of what's possible. So samadhi is thought of as a temporary freedom. It's not a lasting freedom. That comes from wisdom. But this training in samadhi gives us a real taste of what it feels like when the mind is unafflicted by all self-centered dramas, desires and fears and aversion. So we need to have a little taste. Initially, do it on faith, and then we have a taste. And then the faith, it's like real confidence from our own experience. And then we're willing to really engage the practice, to do it every day. doesn't care how long it takes because we know it works. And we're just going to do it. What else are we going to do? And why wouldn't, you know, everybody has some time to do this training every day. Non-harming, we practice all day long. Samadhi, we can practice all day long, but it really benefits from specific time where we have ideal conditions. A quiet room, no other responsibilities, you know, for ideally at least 30 minutes a day. If you can do more time, great. If you don't have 30 minutes, just do what you have time for. But the steadiness of doing it, and if you can get away for a residential retreat once a year or create your own sort of longer period of time where you can do it, that's even better. So that over a series of years, the mind learns how to touch this inner contentedness. And it gets so regular that that experience of intercontentedness Connect, uh, inner contentedness and peace, that steadiness, it can't actually get lost. It's like it's not forgotten. So even when the mind is frazzled and being pushed around by what's going on around us, the different triggers, people insulting us, people telling us we're wonderful, you know, and so that triggers our emotional dispositions. But the mind understands the experience of samadhi or stillness or silence or peace well enough that it's hard to forget, even in the crazy moments of our lives. It's almost like there's a background not far away of that steadiness 
even though on the surface large emotions might arise. But they don't have as much staying power, power because that background of samadhi is there. And so anger may flare up, greed may flare up, excitement may flare up, joy may flare up, but things have a tendency to come back to calm, to stillness. Where in a normal mind, greed may flare up, but the tendency is then to proliferate around it, like to stoke the fire of that greed. Same with fear and anger and excitement. We tend, once an emotion has been triggered, it tends to have a life of its own until we get so exhausted that the mind drops it and then generally falls into another emotion, like hating ourselves for having been caught up in that previous emotion. And we tend to fall from one emotional extreme to another and then feel exhausted. So this training in samadhi is really relies on this initially just hearing about this nifty move where we don't have to gratify what the mind is desiring, craving, in order to experience what the heart really wants, which is relief. Relief comes from ceasing the seeking of relief. That's why it's nifty and tricky. Because if we always think we have to get to happiness in order to be happy, it's always going to be agitating for the mind. (coughs) We'll never have happiness. But if we're just willing to put down the need for happiness, the need for having everything we want, just put it down and be content with the breath coming in or out, or be content with walking, or be content with whatever the mind, heart, body is doing, then the peace we've been seeking will arise right there due to the cessation of agitating thoughts, agitating desires, agitating fears, because all of that has been put down in order to do this one thing completely, 100%. And then the last thing, I'll just review this. When we have that steadiness, either in a sit or just in daily life, then just dealing with the things that come and go in our life gets easier because the mind is clearer, doesn't have a lot of emotional baggage distorting how we're experiencing a particular situation. And then the mind is freed up to be interested in uh, a deeper freedom, I guess you could say. Because even when we're experiencing a lot of steadiness, the mind is still experiencing the stress of what it likes and what it doesn't like. It's just suppressed. It's just not as toxic. But the mind still has its likes and its dislikes. It still is evaluating things in terms of good and bad. Samadhi is good. Distractedness, bad. Right. So even the practice is still in that realm of good and bad. Samadhi is still in that world of good and bad. And the mind realizes this is stressful. It's just stressful having to maintain my samadhi. Even though it's really good, it's much better to have samadhi, to have that steadiness, than to not have it. But it's stressful to be dependent on needing samadhi in order to be content and happy. And the mind gets interested. Is there a deeper freedom? And it begins to 
and because of the steadiness, it, it begins to understand things in a more subtle way, understands the causes for stress in a more subtle way, that the ultimate or the fundamental cause for stress is the mind relating to experience in a particular way, taking it personally. And so more than the samadhi of dropping agitating thoughts, if the mind drops this subtle but very pervasive view of self, me, mine, taking the flow, the unfolding of experience personally, if it drops that self-centered notion, then a much more profound kind of freedom arises in the mind, where everything is experienced as the natural movement of nature, the unceasing, frictionless movement of all things. It's hard to talk about, of course. But the experience is like the rug gets pulled out. There's a free fall. Everything is happening on its own, interdependently, but everything has its own movement, free movement. And the, the mind, what the mind realizes is in a moment like that is that everything is okay, everything's always been okay, and everything will always be okay. And I know that sounds a little off when we realize how much suffering there is in the world. But that's actually the experience of that insight. And it doesn't mean that the heart isn't going to engage the suffering that we see on this relative level of people dying, people being oppressed in different ways, the knee hurting, the hungry stomach, or the stomach hungry. It doesn't mean that we're going to neglect those things. It just means that it's not a problem. It's all okay. And we, if there's something we can do, we do it. And if there's nothing we can do, there's nothing we can do. But it's still all okay. So we address the ills of the world, but it's all okay. Again, it's not so easy to talk about, but it's important to just appreciate this third training, that we don't want to feel like when we start feeling some calm, that that's the end of the practice, as nice as that is, as healing as that is. But we want to notice that even in that experience of contentedness and calm, that the heart's still uneasy because it's dependent. It's still a dependent ha happiness. It's not an independent or an unconditioned happiness. And that just that little uneasiness drives uh, curiosity and investigation. And it opens up, it sort of, uh, the mind gets interested in the view, in the way the mind is understanding experience. And realizing that this very deep old habit of taking things personally is just that. It's just a very ancient old habit. It's not written in stone. It feels like it's an absolute truth that I'm here. I mean, from a relative point of view, a human being would never question this perception that there's me and then there's the world. But when the mind's really steady and feeling really contented, this gets interesting, especially if you get, if you're lucky enough to get the teachings of the Buddha or somebody who's basically suggesting that you get interested in that, in that possibility. And then all of a sudden, it's like... Uh, a little computer virus, somebody like the Buddha says to us, 
Notice how subtly stressful it is to be interpreting your experience all day long from a self-centered point of view. Just notice how stressful that is, that every experience you have, the mind neurotically has to interpret in terms of good and bad. And it can't help itself, because as long as there's a sense of self, then that sense of self has an opinion. Is this pleasant or unpleasant? You can't really have a sense of self without preferences, without dividing the world into terms of good and bad. And that's stressful. So first you get that little computer virus, and then all of a sudden, even though it was fine before, now all of a sudden you realize, now remember, you're pretty steady and content, but all of a sudden you realize how oppressive it is to keep thinking of things in terms of good and bad. And then the Buddha gives you another little computer virus which is basically to reflect on uh, the, what we call right view. Like, well, try just relating to experience, instead of seeing it in terms of self and what the self likes and what the self doesn't like, try seeing experience in terms of, as the movement of nature. Everything is an impersonal, natural movement. So when you notice your thoughts coming and going, see that as a movement of nature, like the wind through a, the leaves of a tree. When you see the wind going through the leaves of a tree, see that as a movement of nature. When you see your friend coming up, see that not as somebody, but just as the interdependent movement of nature. That there is no center to nature. Where is the center here? There is no center. Now we think, well, yeah, there's this center, and then there's everything else, which is just the movement of nature. Or maybe there's a center in you, but there's definitely a center in me. But actually, you know, and, and any physicist would tell us this too, there is no center anywhere. But psychologically, we have this unwholesome computer virus that's taken over the mind that assumes that there is a center. Even though we can't find it, we just are certain there is one. And that has real implications. So the Buddha comes with another computer virus and says, consider that there is no center, but that it's just nature moving. Everything is nature moving, whether you're looking at internal experience or external experience. Practice understanding in this way and see what the effect is. And this is this reflection. This is that last training I'm talking about, the training in wisdom, where we're undermining wrong view through the introduction of specific teachings that I kind of simplified and just said, just gave out, we're training in undermining wrong view in order to allow right view. Right view is basically not having a fixed view, operating in the world without a fixed view. The mind's not fixed, not a fixed view about what's good or what's bad, but just responding moment to moment naturally. Like tomorrow morning, you could get up, the alarm rings, and then you remember the teachings and you think, today, instead of me negotiating my way through the day and getting to the end, I'm not going to do a thing. I'm going to let nature do it all. You know, and then you think, oh, I'm going to lie in bed. <laughs> Until you find yourself getting up. And it might be that nature moves in as a fear, like, I'm going to lose my job if I don't get my ass in gear. <laughs> and then your ass is in gear. And then you notice that, oh, that's nature, you know? 
and as you're walking past the fridge, you know, you notice opening it up and doing, and just to see that. I mean, that's actually like Ajahn Chah. He would let the monks uh, and other and other people training with him use notes when they gave a talk, because he wanted them to train as let the talk be a movement of nature instead of something somebody created and then regurgitates out to the crowd. And so you can practice this. We can practice this in daily life. Some parts of your day will be easier. Walking from your car to your office, for example, might be an easier way to be just a natural flow of nature. Negotiating with your partner, you know, what you're going to do may be a lot harder to let that be. But everything already is that effortless movement of nature. But we project on it somebody who has to do it. And it becomes really difficult then. But that's just a projection. So right view, this last training, is learning how to lose that projection so that nature is just nature, letting nature be nature. So we have about five minutes left. If there are any questions or comments from your own practice you'd like to share with the group, what comes to mind? Hey, Steve. Sure. Yeah, yeah, because it was pleasant, and uh, you know, as soon as the more ordinary mind was operating, uh, which in that experience was probably relatively quickly, but the, the mind can't forget it, even though attachment will arise. That experience is so novel. It makes a real imprint on the mind. The mind understands something about it. It's like a taste that it can't forget. And craving it is not does not lead in that direction. Because it, the mind, like one of the things it remembers is that it was really simple. It was so natural. It was so simple. That's why it's so surprising. It's not surprising. Like, if I work my butt off, raise a lot of money, go do something that's really fun that I've wanted to do for a long time, take a raft down the Colorado River or something like that, you know? Well, that's not surprising that that's fun or that that's really pleasant. And even if it wasn't fun, like it was just cold, I would make it fun. Because, <laughs> you know, all that cognitive dissonance of having worked so hard and put aside the time. And, but this is so surprising. Like when the mind really experiences samadhi, it's so surprising that so much pleasantness is there in the mind letting go of its agitating habits for a moment. It's, it's shocking in a way. Initially, after a while, it's not shocking. It's expected because it's, the mind has seen it. It's come to expect that when the mind gets really simple, it feels really good. And then the mind uses that kind of recognition. So then it notices, like if it's trying too hard, it realizes, oh, this is not in the direction because the mind's getting complicated. And remember, Mark, it's really simple. It's the most simple thing. That's why trying hard to be mindful of your breath will never work. Because trying hard involves a lot of negative emotions like wanting. And that's counterproductive. So we have to be fully with the breath without craving and without fear of not doing it. It has to be a natural dropping in. 
So it takes some time. Because it's like we only know two moves, greed and aversion. And when they don't work, we unconsciously fall into delusion, which is giving up or being distracted. We don't know this other move, which is letting things be, letting things cease, letting the agitating thoughts cease on their own. If we think we got to get rid of those agitating thoughts, that's an agitating thought too. So the art of samadhi is learning how to let things cease. Yeah, thanks, Steve. Bring that up. Other thoughts? Time for maybe one more. Yeah, say your name. without words maybe yeah it's hard to have language in the mind without the mind being confused disturbed by it it's really hard initially at least so that's why so many of the meditation techniques are nonverbal techniques or if there are words the words are in the service of moving in the direction of simplicity and uh, it's really about learning retraining the mind that it's safe to give itself to physicality, like the physicality of the breath, or the physicality of sitting, or just the experience of hearing. So, but we have to, the mind has to learn that that's safe, that that's wholesome to do. And initially, it doesn't believe it. So you have to, the confidence in the words, the teachings, right, which are just words, the intellectual confidence has to be, create enough momentum to give it some time until actual experiences arise that then give us real confidence in it. Thanks, Mary. Good luck finishing up and downloading the mind. Let's just take a second and let go of the words. Maybe take a one deep breath together. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.